Thank you very much indeed. It is two minutes past six. It's Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm Trevor Dan, and this is the second of our three election panels, which are designed to shed some light and give some perspective on the winter campaign of 2019. I've got three distinguished guests with me who'll be trying to make some sense of the debating, the lying, the trolling, the abuse and the occasional constructive policy proposal. Uh, so who exactly is here? Well, Phil Rogers is a political commentator. You'll have heard him regularly on these airways. How are you, Phil? I'm good, thanks. Uh, you've got a bit of a cold. Yeah. So I, lean away the... from the mic. Yeah, if we suddenly go off air, I'll probably sneeze too loudly. <laughs> Sam Davis has joined us. Uh, Sam runs the Queen Edith's Forum. Uh, apart from being a forum in Queen Edith Ward, what does that do, Sam? So it tries to engender some community spirit and some community identity in a bit of the city which uh, has sadly lacked it historically. We are the bit that isn't Trumpington and isn't Cherry Hinton. And Lester Lloyd-Reason is here, Emeritus Professor of Enterprise Strategy from Anglia Ruskin University. Now, Emeritus means you used to be one, but you aren't anymore. Uh, actually, it's, it's a bit nicer than that. So the... Um, being a professor at the university, it was my job. Now I'm emeritus. The professorship belongs. It's all mine. It's all yours. It's all mine. It's no longer my position. It's uh, the professorship becomes mine. Hence the, hence the emeritus comes from the word merit. It belongs to me having, having retired early from the university. Well, thank you very much, uh, all of you, for coming. We'll be here for the next hour. And we convene, of course, in the shadow of the appalling events on London Bridge, which have touched so many people in Cambridge. And I don't want to intrude on the personal and family grief, especially after today's very moving memorial at the Guildhall. But I do think it's worth talking about how the parties have responded. You know, we've had a lot of people, including Jack Merritt's own father, saying, don't use this as a piece of political campaigning. And yet... You know, within hours of it, Boris Johnson was on the television saying it's all the Labour Party's fault. Then we've had Jeremy Corbyn saying, no, 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 it's all the government's fault. Just stepping back, what effect is this going to have, do you think, both nationally and locally, Phil, on the campaign? Well, I guess nationally it was always a bit much to hope for that the parties wouldn't try and make some sort of political point out of it. It's it's um, very tragic when when these things happen and we saw it again of course um in where well, we saw it in the 2017 campaign when we had the, the the manchester bombings and also london bridge attacks and we can only hope that there aren't going to be any further attacks during during the course of this campaign um but inevitably um when when something like this happens people look around for someone to blame clearly the perpetrator is the person to blame but um if you've been in government for um, the past nine years, then people are going to ask questions. What could you have done differently to have to have stopped this happening? Um, it's always really tough, I think, for the security services. There's a lot going on that we don't hear about, um, and there's a great deal that they have to deal with, and they have limited resources like everybody else, uh, and they don't always know what's coming. But Sam, how does it make us feel, though, when we know that this is a moment of grief when we see politicians apparently eyeing the main chance and thinking ah i can i can exploit this well i think it's despicable i think it's absolutely despicable and a total turn off to engagement with the entire process i i would imagine what this is doing is engendering 
a yet more entrenched sense of a plague on all your houses because this is not something that should be politicised and yet they seem unable to resist it. Lester, is that how you'd read it? Yeah, I think so. But I think Come a bit uh, nearer to your microphone. Sure. Um, absolutely. I mean, you, you would have thought really that our, our politicians would have been paying a bit more attention as their, their standing has fallen somewhat over the last sort of two or three years, well, since June 16 and the referendum result. And... Um, you know, raising above this kind of thing for, for party political reasons, and I, I think the electorate are, are pretty much there. They are they're they're above this kind of thing, I think, and they will see straight through it. And I think any anyone seeking to make political capital out of this would, well, as uh, despicable is is absolutely the correct it, word. It seems to chime in with something that people are remarking about, which is civil discourse has been remarkably uncivil during this campaign and some of the old rules of let's just be polite seem to have gone out the window i mean I, sam have we all noticed that um i think when you're inside a kind of social media bubble i know that's a cliche it's quite easy for it to seem that way the community forum co-hosted a hustings for the south camps candidates uh, with homerton college a couple of weeks ago and it was a remarkably well-mannered evening. Um, there was possibly a surprising absence of heat in the room. Uh, I thought things would get more uh, worked up than they did. So it's not the case that no one is capable of behaving. But I think when you see it through the lens that the media pick up on, then everything is, you know, the next 15-minute soundbite and it gets hyped. Well, now, is it that because... Well, partly it's because people in Queen Edith's obviously very polite with one another. I like to think uh, so. Um, <laughs> but is it also actually because what social media allows you to do is be rude and abusive to somebody because they don't know who you are, whereas if you're standing up in front of them, then you can turn back into being very British and shaking hands and uh, yes or no, sir? Well, I don't think it's entirely that sort of uh, disembodied character that does it. If you watched the video of Matt Hancock's car crash hustings in um, was it Haverhill at the weekend, that turned into a real bun fight. So, Tell us a bit more about that. Oh, my goodness. Um, so he took on a heckler and the rest of the room joined in with the heckler and the chair went over to try and break it up and Hancock was determined to finish the point he was making, so he was basically holding the microphone with one hand and fending the chair off with the other. I'm and sorry it, I missed that. that sounds <laughs> well, you, you won't have to look very hard to find it. It was all immensely undignified, actually. And, and as the chair of the event we ran in Queen Edith's, one of the things we say whenever we do a hustings is the people who are standing you know you may disagree with their policies but they have put themselves forward and you should afford them an audience and i i think the whole the whole thing just broke down quite badly and in, in the hancock hustings though he he clearly was in a combative mood we shouldn't pretend of course that politics has always been a polite business i mean uh, i wonder if we've got anybody here from for instance wales um who might remember you know campaigning where you know frankly the, you know over the over the centuries you know people were heckled and, and fruit was thrown 
I think there's a few few Welsh politicians lost their lives, although I've been out surveilling being one of them. No, I, but I think, Trevor, you know, though I think it, uh, and it's true, of course, that, that you know, we catch the headlines. So, uh, you know, something dramatic and dangerous and even violent catches our headlines. And meanwhile, there's, there will be up and down the country a huge deal of enlightened civilised debate going on. But I think it is true to say that the the referendum result has, has split the country in a way that certainly that I haven't seen. And I, at personal level, I mean, I know families, a good friend who's, who barely hasn't spoken to his brother, who was very close with, and families kind of... So it, it certainly divided the country in a way that hasn't happened previously, and it's led to a, a greater degree of animosity towards uh, almost opponents. Um, but I, I'm sure, you know, we... we, we you know, the headlines are usually good, but there'll be a lot of good debate going on, I'm sure. I'm just going to stop you because a remarkable thing happened while you were talking, which is you suddenly got very loud. Um, so I think your microphone might be playing up. Um, so would you just kind of f- f- waggle it a bit? Waggle it. Um, sure, and, uh, not illegal, is it? Uh, no, that's <laughs> going to probably sound a bit better. I'm sorry about okay. that instant bit that's of okay. engineering there. Um, Phil. Yeah, I mean, I think, to a certain extent, politics has gone bananas. And I I would date the bananas going of it from 2014 and the Scottish referendum, which was kind of the first time that we really saw... Um, the effect of social media that's 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 become very widespread. I don't think it's just social media. We're definitely living in a more polarised time now um, than, than we have been perhaps in the past. And... Um, the uh, clearly we have a uh, quite a right wing conservative party and we have quite a left wing at least leadership of the labor party um and and they're sort of pulling people in each direction and you'd sort of expect the 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 middle to sort of be reasserting itself with all with all this political space but it just doesn't seem to be happening we've we've got the the lib dem sort of drooping away in the polls we've we've got the um the the change uk various other names uh, really failing to make any impact and uh, it's kind of hard to see where things are going to go over over time um, I think the standing of politicians is really sort of falling lower and lower in in the public esteem in general and you've got to ask yourself what sort of things start happening when it falls off the bottom and and we're starters we're seeing some of this happening now I think so that feeds into part of the discussion that was uh present in the one of the tortoise thinking events that that was held in Grantchester a couple of weeks ago I don't know if people have heard about these this is tortoise the tortoise, new the, media yes, organization slow, slow news and they are looking at south cams which is my constituency um as one of six or seven that they're focusing on because they think they symbolize particular aspects to what's going on at the moment and they had probably 20 people in the Rupert Brook in Grantchester, not pre-selected, anyone could go along. And the mood in that room was one of pretty much abject despair with with the entire political process as well as the individuals currently participating in it. The level of disillusion, disaffection was absolutely palpable. And so maybe what you're seeing in Philly is seeing in terms of the the absence of the middle is just that the middle have all given up and gone home and it's left to the polarised loudmouths to to dominate the the airwaves. Is that because we're now voting against something 
more than we're voting for something. I get a real sense that people are saying, I couldn't possibly vote for that lot because of him, the leader, so I'll have to vote for the other lot. So I don't even think it's about that lot. This seems to me to be a a debate which is being run along almost entirely presidential lines. I couldn't vote for Corbyn. I couldn't vote for Johnson. And so once you start narrowing it down, not even to parties in possession of a manifesto and a range of policies, but just to an individual and the character of that or the perceived character of that individual, you're absolutely losing any kind of nuance or, um, you know, room for reasoned debate. Because, Lester, you've... As, as, as a professor and an academic, you've taught students nuance and shades of opinion. And my sense of politics as I was growing up was that it was often quite difficult to make a decision because a lot of policies overlapped. Nowadays, it does appear as though it's the blue corner and the red corner like a boxing match. And you've got to be on one side of, or, or the other. Is that how it feels for you? It does, and I think um, I think I just reinforced. You know, the old mantra was: it's not about personalities; it's about policies, and, and that's draining away. And I think, you know, the cult of personality and and, and Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell understanding it's about in a in a twenty four hour media world. It's all about presentation. It's all about packaging the message. Um, so we've got the you know get Brexit done and unleash our potential. And that's kind of it. And and then every now and again there are you know pontifications of, of policy. But it is the the it, it was you know, the whole point of university education is about taking both sides of a, a debate, analysing things, understanding, taking a taking an informed position on things. Well there's not much informed positioning going well, on. Let me, it's, it's polarization and individual individual. Let me pick up that point that you make there and Sam made it earlier about the media. You know, the media always gets it you know, gets it in the neck because it's it's not left enough, it's not right enough, it's 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 whatever you don't want it to be is what it is. Um, my sense of the BBC's handling of the Boris Johnson affair, which is Johnson refuses to be on the Andrew Neil show, so they say, oh well, in that case you can't be on the Andrew Marr show, and then they change their mind. And they say, oh, it's because it's an incident of national emergency, whereas actually they could have had the Home Secretary on, I think. The BBC isn't, I don't think, acquitting itself terribly well in this election, do you, Sam? The problem is that there has been, um, to to use the the name of a much-loved children's book, a series of unfortunate events. So this all started with the business at the Cenotaph and the, the mysterious use of footage from three years ago rather than this year. This is when somebody played the wrong clip because they it had been... Because. It had been labelled Boris Cenotaph, but not 2016, so they obviously thought it was the current and, one. And I'm completely sure that for every one of these incidents there is an utterly rational explanation, but again, in presentational terms, it's beginning to look really It's not a good look if you want to be seen as an impartial news provider. And and when you have a public which is already predisposed to be cynical and suspicious and feels like it's being manipulated, anything will be pounced on. Phil, do you still trust the BBC? 
I do on the whole, and I think, you know, they're not having a great election. I, th- I think that's right. Um, there's been... As, as, as Sam says, a, a series of unfortunate events and, and they're each sort of individually unfortunate but together they do kind of feed the, the conspiracy theory view of the BBC which is that it's it's all evil and, and uh, belongs to the other side and uh, generally when people start attacking the BBC I think, oh come off it, you're, you, you know, you're, you're having a go but just because both sides are attacking you doesn't necessarily mean you're right, I think. It's um, quite hard, I think, isn't it, when... The definition of impartiality, which when I worked for the BBC, which I did for 30 years, full disclosure, was considered to be, well, let's tell all sides of the story, has been reduced to, um, well, we'll report that view and then we'll report the opposite view. So it's it, it's it's about, um, we're balancing this argument by saying... Here's somebody who believes the world is round, so we must have somebody on who believes the world is flat. So there's, there's, it's false equivalence, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Even if the first person is just a round-the-world yachtsman, you've got to have somebody else on, on for balance. But, uh, <laughs> um, and, and I think certainly with the climate debate, there's, there's been a good deal of that, though I think they're now backing off from that a bit and, and they're sort of tending to go a bit more with the scientific consensus while still reporting other views. I, mean, I must say, I don't know. Having, having, having thought the BBC, of course, was the you know, the greatest broadcasting corporation in the world. I, I no longer believe almost anything I hear that comes out of the BBC. I find it uh, appalling most of the time. And when you when you listen to when you get back to your point, Trevor, you know about nuance and complexity. Uh, and now, when you are able to hear. Um, detailed debate and then you look at the, the reporting of it on the BBC the editorial policy, what they choose to include and what they choose to exclude I, I sometimes find quite shocking, I must say I, I just want to drill down slightly I don't suppose you could give me an example of this can you? Um, oh, I, I, examples I use, I, I watch um, I would watch the debates on Parliament for example uh, and, I'd, and I'd sit and watch oh, hours of them, I don't know why it didn't do me any good, uh, my heart blood pressure, um, anything else, but I, I was interested and wanted to try... You try talking pictures follow. that's a much better channel. Oh, but then you know, I, I'd, I'd catch, in fact I stopped um, watching the, the 6 o'clock news, as you'd, 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 you'd look at what they chose to include, and there would be loads. I'm really sorry. I should be, be 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 able to remember something specific, but the the way in which somebody would make a point, and then they'd stop it. And the really important point that someone had made um, would just be would just be lost. One of the issues that people always raise when you talk to them about coverage, and not just on the BBC actually, but on Sky News and and Peston, is everybody's always being hurried up. Yes. And, you know, for the re- when, when they asked me to do this, I said, well, I'm not doing it for ten minutes. You know, we're, we're going to go on because I'm not going to sit there and say, don't have to hurry you, and briefly, if you will, and all those kind of things. Because it doesn't really help the conversation or the debate flow, does it, Sam? So I watched, the, I think it was the first of the um, prime ministerial debates, uh, and I turned it off after 20 minutes because the the belief that you can force people to communicate their position in 90 seconds uh, and the belief that that's apparently all the audience want from their coverage was was just totally totally depressing yeah i think we've rather lost the art of the long-form interview you remember some of the 
the interviewers of Days Gone By, or you do if you're as old as I am, Vincent Hanna, for example, um, Robin Day going back, back a bit further on, and, and there seemed to be time then to, to get into more more detail and, and pursue the ideas. Um, not, not that we don't have some, some great interviewers these days. I mean, An- Andrew Neil, you know, whatever you think of him politically, and he's got his own opinions, of course, he really is a ferocious interviewer, and boy, does he do his homework. And, and that's um, really what makes him very One of the, effective. My, my favourite examples of this is Nick Robinson on the Today programme is one thing. Nick Robinson on his own podcast, Political Thinking, where he can go on for 50 minutes, a completely different animal. And of the two, the second is much more nourishing, I think. So for the 2015 election, Cambridge 105 got me to do half-hour interviews with all the candidates in the city and South Cams. And it was an absolute delight because you really felt like you had the space to allow them to communicate as opposed to simply deliver the message. And I just feel whenever I'm watching or listening to political programming at the moment, someone is trying to drill messages into me. Strong and stable. Strong and stable. Exactly. And I I refuse to be patronised like that. I want more meat. So let me ask you this, because it's a big thing in media circles at the moment, and it's the word liar. If the Prime Minister says we failed to get our Queen's speech through Parliament because it was voted down, when actually it was passed by 16 votes, should the BBC or indeed any journalist say or write that was a lie? Or is that coarsening public debate, as we were just saying? Well, they should say it's passed by 16 votes, I think. Um, I mean, the, the there is a relu- I'm mentioning this because there is a reluctance to do this, and it's happening in America as well, isn't it? Where there's the, a sense of, no, we mustn't dignify these lies by calling them lies. I'm not quite sure I understand why you can't do that. But. Well, the, the, the classic quote is, you know, if somebody says it's raining and somebody says it's not, it's not just your job to report that, it's your job to look out the window as well. Lester? No, I and I think back to that point that you know I, I wasn't attacking the media earlier on. By the way, it was it was that we, you know, we. I guess I, I guess I, I'm of an age whereby I lived through elections whereby they were interesting and fascinating, and you and you had real discussions. And as, and what I mentioned was that that probably it was Blair and Alistair Campbell for the first time understood how to harness the. But that, like it or not, we live in a 24-hour media world uh, and you are required um, to get sound bites, to, to, to get your message across as quickly as possible with, with slogans and, and we're reaping the... We know that the chickens are coming home to roost really, because that's what we get. Um, <clears throat> Thank you, Lester. Um, it's Cambridge 105 Radio. It's uh, 25 past six. This is the second of our election panels. I've got Phil Rogers, Sam Davis and Lester Lloyd-Reason with me. I'm Trevor Dan. Let's, um, as I promised at the beginning, talk a little bit more about the local picture. I uh, wondered if um, you'd like to consider the whole business of tactical voting, something we didn't really get into with last week's panel, but both of the major constituencies in our area, Cambridge and South Cams, have both been targeted by people who think that tactical voting for one reason or another could 
be very important. Um, Sam, do you want to pick that up? Because you're you're a kind of independently minded person. <laughs> I'm, I've got you down as a bit of a unite to remain kind of person there. I am offering no comment whatsoever. Good. That is exactly what's required. That's what you told me I had to say. Correct. Um, so, yes, South Cam's is a conservative Liberal Democrat marginal. Really is quite marginal. Uh, the last polling data I saw suggested that there were, you know, maybe down to three or four percent in it at the moment. And um, this is because, tell us, is, is, is so, uh, the well, Tory vote going down because Remainers won't vote for them? Or, or is it Liberals, Liberal Dems coming up? Well, so we've, we've talked about polarisation and one of the characteristics of the Conservative candidate in South Cams is that he is quite a polarising personality. So whereas Heidi Allen ran very successfully as a Conservative, she was one flavour of Conservative. We now have a very different flavour of Conservative with a track record that has caused people to ask some very searching questions about what kind of a person he is and what his values are. Um, and so obviously when you have a very polarising candidate for one party, uh, some people will turn away from that. And so the Liberal Democrats, I think, are reaping the rewards of Heidi Allen um, as an individual. She was an extremely effective local MP, regardless of party loyalty. She was very, very, very thorough and effective. Um, so her endorsement of the Liberal Democrat campaign. She was actually out with the Liberal Democrats uh, campaigning in Queen Edith's this weekend. There's photos of her. She's she's putting her weight behind Ian Solemn, the Liberal Democrat candidate. And I think that's, that's had a real impact. And do you feel that the Labour Party in South Cams, which was, after all, second last yep. time round, do you think they've pulled down, uh, pulled away from that fight? Be you know, is Dan Grief effectively saying, well, I'm going to come third this time, so you better vote, um, you know, orange rather than blue? Knowing Dan as I do, I don't think he has backed down from a fight. I can't imagine that he would back down from the fight because he's thoroughly committed. I uh, first met him in 2015 when he stood against Heidi, interviewed him again in 2017. He's also stood as the... Uh, candidate for the ward the city council ward election several times so i actually faced him at hustings last may um dan won't be backing down but i think he's got a very hard sell because ian is the unite to remain candidate ian is the the candidate who's been tipped by all the tactical voting sites if you don't want a tory returned in south cams vote for ian I don't see that Dan's actually got anywhere to go, no, no matter how personally effective or committed he is. Phil? Yes, I mean, I'm sure Dan would stress the point that he was second last time and he was second the time before that, but um, I, personally I don't think he's going to be second this time either. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's a bit of a tough gig for him, but um, last time I think the South Cam's campaign was probably the, the, the cuddliest... Um, parliamentary campaign in in the country the candidates are all really friendly to each other and and respectful and so forth and we've really got uh, a bit more of an edge to it this time with with such a uh, comparatively polarized Anthony Brown's a, a divisive character Very even within so. the Tory party 
Yes, very much so. Because of things he's said in the past, which perhaps uh, views he doesn't hold now, who knows, we'll find out. When well, and I think also the, the Heidi effect um, really upset a lot of people in the, the South Camps Conservative Party. I know some people who um, can't really say her name without spitting. So, um, you know, the damage... The damage was done in some senses even before Anthony was adopted as the candidate. Lester, but I, I think you know the tactical voting or not. This is the the strangest, um, least likely um, election to to call that we've certainly in my lifetime. You know where you have absolute committed Labour voters who, who are, are committed to leaving and won't vote on on that. You've got absolute die blue in the world conservatives who who absolutely do not want to leave and voting on the other side you've got then people who absolutely don't want to leave at all loving the lib dem you know revoke article 50 it's so it's so crazy mixed up this selection so and you chuck potential tactical voting in and it's 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 a real quagmire this one i think um i think lots of people find it tricky actually to know which way which way to move Well, sometimes. I was looking at the um, poll tracker. There's there's a number of these. And the one that I sent you is, is the one published by The Guardian. But they're all showing roughly the same, which is, you know, the Tory vote is going up a bit and the Labour Party vote is also going up and everyone else is being squeezed down. Um, but, of course, that's a national picture and it's a party political picture. And as you were saying, the big issues are cutting across party, aren't they? So you do wonder whether that kind of polling is of any value at all. Well, I think a lot of what happens locally is just decided on national swing. And, and there's you, you, people who are interested in politics, you know, there's, there's so much stuff going on, there's so many leaflets coming through the letterbox. But I think there's a, a large number of people who go to vote who just don't pay that much attention to what's happening locally. Um, I remember one a poll of the Cambridge constituency, I think it was for the 2015 election, and one of the things they said is, can you name your MP? And um, I, I, the numbers for this were... I, I, so um, Julian Huppert had been MP for five years at the time. He'd been pretty hyperactive, I think it's fair to say. Uh, and his name recognition was about 35%. So two-thirds of people in Cambridge didn't know who he was. And Daniel Seichner, he'd stood against him uh, at the previous election and um, he'd been the PPC for five years. His name recognition at that time was 5%. And that really gives you a, an indication of how much attention a lot of people don't pay to, to what's going on. You mentioned, um, Phil, your letterbox. Uh, one of my guests last week, David Skinner, said that the Liberal Democrat policy seemed to be death by leaflet. Um, and so I thought I should report, because I did say last week that I hadn't heard from the other parties at all in South Cams. I have now had a rather plaintive leaflet from the Labour Party, and I've had another one of those faux newspapers from the Tories. But still, the pile of Lib Dem stuff, I don't know, are they in with the sort of print unions or something? Uh, I mean, they, they seem to have an enormous amount. Are we all finding this? You're in the you're in the city last time. Yeah, yeah? I I'm trying to think. You know, it's been I, I haven't had much from the Conservatives. I must say, I had a, a big poster for the window from Labour and from the Lib Dems. Um, 
maybe the Conservatives know something about me as I haven't had one from them. Um, but no, I haven't been overly inundated. Although having said that, I do have a dog who tries to get to stuff <laughs> before I do. So maybe they're all inside the dog. You never know, Trevor. What about you, Sam? In Queen Edith, I mean, it, I would imagine, as you said, it it, it is a, a two-way marginal. They they must be fighting over every vote. I don't think the Conservatives are necessarily trying that hard in Queen Edith's because Queen Edith's is such an anomalous inclusion in the bigger South Camps constituency. Um, at the hustings, it felt to me very much as though the the audience was. Um, pretty hostile to Anthony Brown and Anthony Brown felt that and was not making strenuous efforts to, to convert people I didn't feel um, so maybe they're much more active out in the villages I've had one leaflet through from the Tories I think um, but not that much at all actually which I'm quite disappointed about from from all the political parties because I've got chickens and I need paper to put in the chicken run <laughs> right we'll ex uh, we'll cut that one out from that's, the uh, podcast so um, it's probably the same reason because the Conservatives are not going to win in the city so they're probably not putting no, they're probably exerting their efforts elsewhere I okay let's move on to a, a more substantive issue that I'd like to touch on because it's relevant here in Cambridge and South Cams uh, as much as it is anywhere and that's the NHS and social care. Now, every party at every election says, don't worry, the NHS is safe in our hands. Boris Johnson and the Tories are saying that privatising it is off the table. This is always assuming the NHS can afford a table to put anything on. Um, is that kind of issue, you know, the future of Addenbrooke's, the future of whether you can get... Um, an appointment to your GP, the fact that you might have to sell your house when you get old. Are those issues, do you think, playing on the doorstep? I mean, you were saying you think it's more of a national thing, Phil, and a bit more presidential, but is there no sense in which those issues are important to people? Well, my feeling is that the Conservatives are very much trying to play it safe after their experience in 2017 when they came out with this, um, what was branded the dementia tax and uh, that was really uh, one of the number of bad things that happened to them during the campaign. And uh, I don't know if you stopped somebody in the street and asked them what's a policy in the Conservative manifesto, whether they'd be able to answer you very uh, effectively because really it, it seems to me they're just trying to avoid putting forward anything that, that is going to sort of fall apart as spectacularly as that particular policy did. But there's absolutely a huge issue about um, the future of the health service, what we're doing with um, targets for A&E and, um, and how social care is going to be afforded in the future and that's been a responsibility of county councils and uh, they're really coming under very severe pressure and, and have been for, for some years now. So We've got a, an issue, haven't we, in this area that um, a lot of people are not quite sure whose fault anything is, you know, is it the government, is it the county council, is it the district council, is it, what you know, what the unitary authority, what the hell is it? Um, do you think that makes these issues a bit more complex for people? It certainly muddies the water, and, and you kind of need a PhD to understand diagrams of Cambridgeshire local government, it, it, and uh, there seems to be a, a new level of it coming along almost every year, and I think Labour are proposing a new um, government office for the east of England as well, which will add yet further excitement to the, to the situation. Lester, how does that play where you are? 
Um, well, I was going to say, you know, I think this is once we get past the sound bites and everything else, I think this is really where this is, this is really the battleground for this election. I feel that people do realise that if you want to see a GP, if you don't want to wait eight hours in a, and you do have to fund things properly, and the, and the numbers are mind-boggling. The, the billions that are, you know, just to, in, in case you know, understanding these numbers, a billion. If I was, how much a billion is one? If I was to give away a billion pounds, and I stand in Cambridge Market Square and I give away a pound every five seconds, and I work a forty-hour week, so I do eight hours a day, five days a week, to give away my last pound now. To give away a billion, when would I have had to have started? And the answer is in the middle of the 12th century. <laughs> that's how much one billion is. You couldn't spend it. You buy 100 Ferraris, that's just, that's just 20 million. You've got 980 million more to spend. So the numbers that have been banded around 30, 40, 60, and this is the, I think it plays, this is the real battleground because, because Jeremy Corbyn is, is playing, is wanting to say we're going to spend serious money we're going to borrow hugely to fix things and the conservatives you say are playing safe i think they're playing a straight bat and they're not wanting to they're not wanting to rock that particular board and staying to the message and i think if this if this election ends up being won or lost i think it will be over over such things as the nhs and the funding and 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 real real things such as that sam um so I have a theory, which is that, as as Lester says, there's some very big numbers being banded around. Um, and they're all seeming to be used about things. You know, it's money for transport. It's money for the health service. And I think, actually, there's there's a gap of understanding between... What, what that money will get you that will actually affect your daily life. So you can sit and listen to someone making promises about, you know, X hundred million for the health service or whatever it is. But the level at which you experience that is so disaggregated, so personal, so um, dependent on your own circumstances that it's almost just noise. It almost just goes over your well, head. I think this was a point I was trying to make about the NHS and, and social care, which is, who do I vote for if I think that social care is in a state? Who is going to put more money into it? It would appear that the Labour Party says, yeah, we'll put more money into it because we'll borrow some. The Tories are saying, as far as I can see, well, it's pretty much steady as she goes, actually, but if the economy improves, then we'll have some to put there. Liberal Democrats are saying they would raise taxes a little bit. Um, Does any of that work, do you think? Does, Does anybody who is worried about their old age feel that any of those are providing any kind of answer, Phil? Well, it's... um I think when you're when you're thinking about these these big numbers and and there's sort of um, you know a billion here a billion there pretty soon it all adds up. Um, but I always find it quite quite helpful to try and think about what it means per household. So there's 27 million households in the UK. So if you've got a billion pounds, you can stand in the market square since the 12th century, sure. But it works out to what about 30, 35 pounds per household. So you know that's not necessarily all that much on on your tax bill altogether. Um, but 
as to who is going to have the most plausible policies, you, you know, it's it's do you believe you can find all this money to, to spend? But everybody seems to be um, promising, I mean, the magic money tree is the, the, the phrase that's used, but... Um, it all seems to be about we're going to promise this, we're going to promise that, and we'll have the economy to pay for it or we won't. But, uh, but um, I, I think, sure, but, I, you know, magic monetary, but I think people do understand, you know, the numbers. I mean, there's what, there's half a million sleep on the streets every night. There are eight million people living in arrears. There are a million people living in in-work poverty. There's two million kids living in poverty. These are numbers that are as a consequence of, of austerity and the numbers that the Conservative Party argued that were necessary. And, and I think the, I think that, that, that once, as I said, we get past the, the summit, I think increasingly people understand that, well, actually, there is quite a big issue at stake here. And whether you believe that the borrowing will cripple the country or not, do you believe that this will make a difference? Do you believe, as, uh, as you said, Sam, that you know, will the money actually make a difference to me? But I think that when you discuss these issues, I think it really is do we do we need money to fix stuff or do we just shrug our shoulders and and go steady as we go and i think it's that's the big issue that i think will will really drive this in the end because you do sense don't you pain. i mean even that the 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 much reviled bus the 350 million quid for the nhs you do feel as though that partly was a success because people thought yeah that's a good idea yeah, we'll have some money for the National Health Service because we all we all buy that, you know, whether it was nonsense or not. I think there is a sense, isn't there, that we probably do need to spend some more money. The question is, is it coming out of my pocket or yours? Well, no. I mean, it, you know, ever since 1946, the way you get elected is by saying, I'll cut your taxes. Mm. And, and so as a consequence now, you know, nothing is funded properly, so there's no real... And there is insufficient public... Spending, so everything—schools, police, hospitals—everything pretty much is is grossly underfunded. So it's whether people finally think, well, actually, I suppose we do need to fix this and pay more, or whether people will again say, actually, do you know what? I just don't want to pay any more tax. Okay, so I went to see Billy Bragg last week at Good the choice, junction, true. Good choice. and uh, he was doing three gigs in a row in Cambridge. So he stayed, and he did two extra performances, as you probably know, in the Market Square, uh, one supporting the climate change strikers and the other supporting the university strikers. And all this just made me think, I mean, I've known Billy for donkey's years and he's the same as he ever was. He is a political activist. It just made me wonder what's happened to that kind of notion of we're in favour of something because it's right not we're arguing about this because we've been to university and we know some stuff about macroeconomics and all that kind of stuff and we know the difference between Canada Plus Plus and the WTO. It, it seems as though his politics was breaking away from a lot of that and just being, if you like, a bit more simple but also kind of direct and quite persuasive. Is the word honest? Well, that's a word that I will allow you to and, use. And, and the Authentic. Reason, the, the, yes, the reason I ask that is because um, we've, we've just been touching on money. And I think, on the one hand, it, it seems inconceivable to me that the, the Conservatives can just wake up one morning and go, OK, that's the end of austerity. It's like, hell, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> 
you know, where did the traffic light change? How do, how do we know today is the end of austerity? What what milestone have we passed? But equally, I think the numbers that the the Labour Party are chucking around, I haven't looked into their deliverability yet. I will do. Certainly the sensation is that they're sort of writing a cheque a day. You know, the fact that they added, at what, $58 billion for the WASPy women that wasn't even costed into the manifesto. About 2,000 quid per household. Yeah. I, you know, you can understand why people have some sense that um, potentially that's not all actually deliverable. And so the Billy Bragg thing, you know, that... That seems honest, that seems straightforward, that seems relatable. Going back to something we talked about a few minutes ago, it was very odd to hear the man from Red Wedge telling us to vote Liberal, you yes. know, which he was. You know, he was saying, hold your nose, because, you know, Brexit's the most important thing. Which brings me on to the next thing. Again, uh, we didn't talk about this last week, but we should, even though their poll numbers have disappeared... The Brexit party, the, you know, UKIP as was, they always seem to do well in elections that don't matter very much, and then we get to this position and people don't seem to want to vote for them. Is is that how we're all seeing it here? Well, they're a bit more of a complaint, I think, than a serious <laughs> pol pol political party. Um, and they really have plummeted away in a quite dramatic fashion in the polls, in, in the, the poll trackers. They're kind of down to about 3%, I think, sort of down with, down with the Greens. Um, and deciding not to stand in a whole pile of uh, seats has not helped that, of course. Um, and they are still standing in some seats where they may do some damage to Labour, but they may also do some damage to the Conservatives and, and just stop them um, getting ahead of the Labour. So we'll... Um, see how it turns out but i don't think they're really in it for the political long term it's 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 much more about uh, we want to muddy muddy things up and um, try and get brexit done in whatever way um they're going to be able to and do of course um south cams um has only got three candidates it's very unusual cambridge itself has got several and i'm just going to name them because i should um jeremy caddick for the green party rod cantrell for the lib dems peter Dorr from the Bre brexit party uh, keith garrett is standing for rebooting democracy uh, miles hurley is an independent russell perrin is the conservative jane robbins is standing for the social democratic party and daniel zeitner of course for labor are all those marginal candidates going to be monster-raving loonies? Well, I, I, I mean, I mean single-issue parties never do well in elections. They do, as you said, they, they tend to do well in, um, in, um, in Parliament um, term elections. But then, as you said to us at the, the, the start of the programme, you know, there seems to be much more about I w I'm not going to vote for, for him or that lot rather than... And I think there's enough protest already in voting for Lib Dem, Tory or Conservative. And I think Brexit and Green, they're, 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 they're probably not going to do very well, I would have thought. An Other interesting than, thought. Sam, you don't tell us when, but you stood as uh, as an independent in uh, in local elections. I you, did. you have stood as an independent. How does that play on the doorstep? Do they say, well, independent of what? Um, well, so it was, uh, it, the timing is actually material because it was this May and it was just as Heidi had left 
the Conservative Party and was standing as an independent, or standing rather for... No, change. change. Change UK, but, United but, but the, the word independent was in there at some point, and so there was some confusion about whether oh, I the was tiggers. independent or whether I was <laughs> an independent. And um, that all got a bit silly, really. So I think in, in local elections, an independent can have an impact because I think I had a relatively clear programme. Um, in, in a national election, particularly the kind of national election we've got in 2019, really, I, I, I think Leicester's spot on. You can, you can have a protest vote by voting for one of the, but the never, big three. Nevertheless, there is a sense, I think, that personal votes count. I, I know people who live in... Cambridge, who say, well, I wouldn't naturally vote Labour, but I like Daniel. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, you know, my own view is that if Heidi Allen had stood again, she probably got in um, because she had a big personal following. And do you think that sort of thing is, is mattering in these constituencies, Phil? I think people often think personal votes are bigger than they are. Um, 20% of Cambridge residents move every year. Uh, it's quite a high turnover. A lot of people aren't terribly interested in politics. It's maybe 5-10%, um, and that can matter in a close race. It can, it can definitely make the difference. And also the fact that people have been in and have done uh, tens of thousands of casework issues over, the, over their time, and that, that does make a difference as well. Um, but I think it's easy to overstate how important it is. Can I ask you about the whole business of a winter election? One was brought up thinking, well, none of the parties will ever go for this because they don't like campaigning in the dark. When we talked about this last week, there was a sense of winter, what winter? Well, we've got one now. Um, so, do you think it's going to make a difference, Lester? You know, when um, um, lots of my f overseas friends laughed at me, I said, and they all said, back to the referendum in um, June 16, and, I, and they said, it'll be fine, won't it? And I said, you know what? The weather has such impact on voting patterns in the UK. So be very interested in this. I said, it could come down to the weather. And if you remember, it was absolutely hammering down with rain the day of that referendum. And so all of those were desperate, all got there. And, and I bet you, loads of those have thought, ah, we'll be fine, all stayed at home. And of course, it wasn't fine. And years ago, um, particularly in Wales, you asked about Wales earlier on, the Conservatives were incredibly well organised. They always got their vote out. If they had elderly voters, they'd pick them up in cars. And the Labour Party had had almost no mechanism whatsoever. So if it rained, if it was really cold, the Labour Party vote fell quite quite considerably. Who knows? I mean, as you said, this is not normal times. Uh, but who knows? But it used to be the case that um, Labour Party vote used to fall off if it was cold, if it was raining. So it's definitely going to be cold. And if it's raining, well, who knows? I think also it's not just a winter election. It's an election two weeks away from Christmas. And uh, when you think about the, the sort of age demographics who may or may not turn out to vote, proximity to Christmas might be quite important because I would bet my bottom dollar that the kind of 18 to 24-year-old tranche have a more interesting social run-up to Christmas than the 75-plus. Uh, so it may just be that the, the young vote has more distractions... I don't know. But that's the other point. Interesting, very interesting. But one of the things, you know, that another thing to throw into this this, this mix is the number of, of people who've registered 
to vote, um, which is huge, and and um, and like they have been um, amongst um, amongst young people, certainly university students who were very um, uh, very politically aware, often hadn't registered to vote. That mix of they'd left home and they hadn't really got around to it, and that's another thing that that throws another thing that throws this mix up in the air. Absolutely, is that what are these all all these young kids going to do that we don't really that we don't really factor in? Well, it's interesting you say that. I was at a um, Thanksgiving dinner on Saturday night and there were some university students there and they described student apathy in May elections because it's exam time and apparently, uh, you know, none of the politicians were going to go and do the revision for the students and therefore the students decided to stay home rather than go out and vote. vote So I could be completely wrong about the Christmas effect. I think the Cam- certainly in Cambridge, the um, student political organisations have had a big impact on canvassing, particularly Labour. They've uh, had a la- huge number of feet on the street from um, from the uh, student uh, organisations. Um, there is going to be an effect because the end of term is like the weekend before polling day in Cambridge. So whether students choose to vote in their home constituencies or or here in the city, um, possibly via a postal vote, is uh, is definitely going to make a difference. Uh, many of those postal votes have already been cast, of course. And what about Brenda from Bristol? You know, voter fatigue. Is there a sense of, oh, God, not another one? I think we're just kind of getting battered a bit by by all these. I mean, the kind of worst case scenario is we have another hung parliament mm. and another election in February, and then maybe a referendum as well. And and um, people are just getting election fatigue. Yeah, did you think that as well, Sam? Yeah, I'm sorry. I probably audibly groaned when <laughs> Phil laid out the vision of further electoral chaos. Um, yeah, because none of it seems to be achieving anything. That's the thing. We we seem to engage in these democratic bloodlettings with all the um, bad grace and insults and um, general hoo-ha and yet they've got us nowhere and how many times can we go around that loop? I'm not sure I agree, you know, I I think this time, I think for, for, for good or for bad people's blood is up a bit and I think people are a bit more interested, either because they're so cross Frustrated, you know. I'll blooming show them. I'm not going to, you know. It, it's. I think people are more engaged, even if it's because they're just so fed up. At least if people are politically engaged, it's a good thing. And I feel, I feel more people are are paying attention to this rather than, you know, this is it. Does doesn't matter who you vote for. The government always wins. You know that whole kind of attitude. I think, I, I think turn up might be quite high this time. Okay, we have a couple of minutes left, um, which we're going to fill with prognostication. Um, so who'd like to go first? What's going to actually happen? On December the twelfth, what what will we wake up to on uh, Friday the thirteenth? Oh my goodness! Um, I mean, we mo- will be recording this and playing <laughs> it back, of course. Well, I, I I have a blog and I try and predict at least for Cambridge what's going to happen every year, but I don't always get it right. Um, but uh, I think nationally, really, at the moment, we're looking either at a smallish conservative majority or a hung parliament with conservatives largest party but who knows we had some dramatic movements in the polls in the final um, days of the 2017 campaign i don't see any sign of that happening at the moment but you never know sam um we're what still a fortnight out that's a lot of time for a lot of um 
things to happen that we can't possibly Are we going to have a war of jellyfish here or one of those kind of big moments? Well, exactly. There, 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 some of the characters involved uh, in prominent positions in this year's campaign seem to have laid so many booby traps for themselves that you, you just sense that something could very, very credibly blow up. So... I, I'm what do you think, Lester? Yeah, I agree. As we sit here, I agree. It's between it's between a, a twenty thirty conservative majority or a hung parliament. But I agree the potential for something serious to happen that throws it all up in the air again. It's 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 very possible. And what about uh, Cambridge itself? Do we think Daniel Zeichner is? Back in. Oh, that's always, always too tough to call. That that's always, you know, um, that that could go either way. Um, I think he does a good job. You're a blogger, um, Phil. Did but he probably go? he might squeak back in. I think. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, at the moment I'm expecting him to get back in, but with quite a reduced majority. And quickly, Sam. I think Ian might edge it because of the Liberal Democrat machine in South Cams, which I know is operating at full force. And that is the end of your second Cambridge election panel. I've been Trevor Dan. Ta-da. See you next time. Advertising on Cambridge 105 Radio is easy. Get your business heard right across the city and South Cambridgeshire. Call Cambridge 967 959 or email sales at cambridge105.co.uk. 